0: To be honest with you, the uh, return can be infinite because as the general partner, developer in a project, you could end up with literally no money invested in the project.
1: Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Invest in the West, where we talk about investing strategies and real estate-related topics in the Western part of the United States. I'm Nicholas Cook, and I'm here with my co-host, Matt Williams. Our guest today is Fred Dockweiler, the Managing Director of Barcadia for HUD and FHA loans in Washington. Fred has over 25 years of commercial real estate experience, with, and with those, 10 years focused on debt and equity for affordable housing projects. Fred, thanks for being here with us. Can you uh, maybe just start the off by telling the audience a little bit about yourself and, you know, how you got into real estate finance.
0: Sure, Nick. Thanks. Uh, So I've been in real estate finance since the early 90s. Uh, Originally worked for banks on the commercial real estate side, and that's where I was first introduced to affordable housing. Uh, I did a bond deal with a bank back in the Midwest uh, that ultimately became Bank of America, but that was my first exposure to affordable housing. Since then, I've worked for affordable housing developers. I've done a, a number of conventional and commercial projects for uh, developers as well as other banks and lenders. I worked for a tax credit syndication company, um, and we'll get into uh, low-income housing tax credits, I think, in a little bit in this conversation. But worked for uh, a tax credit syndication company and then went back into the banking world. And most recently, went to work for Burkadia Commercial Mortgage. Um, and for for Bercadia, I place commercial mortgages uh, primarily on affordable housing projects. You mentioned HUD, but I also use Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and there's a number of other permanent loan providers uh, for the affordable housing projects that I finance.
1: Great, great. Well, you know, I think. Affordable housing is a pretty big buzzword. You're hearing it a lot more and more lately, obviously, for uh, affordability reasons, especially when you're getting into like coastal areas. Um, maybe you can just tell us a little bit about like, what is affordable housing and what's the theoretical purpose kind of socially behind it?
0: So, affordable housing is where developers uh, restrict rents to a percentage of the area median income. So true affordable housing, i call it capital A affordable housing. We'll maybe talk about small A or workforce affordable housing a little bit. But true affordable housing, a minimum of 20% of the units have to be available to folks that uh, are at 50% or less of the area median income, or 40% of the units that have to be at 60% or less of the area median income. And those residents can spend no more than 30% of their income on that rent. So to give you an example, let's say the market rent is $1,000. A 50% AMI rent could be, call it $600. And so the most that the developer could charge for that unit is $600. Mm -hmm. So for that $400 essentially give up, if you will, from the developer, the federal government will award... Tax credits to the property. There's a formula that defines how those credits are awarded, but the developer can then sell those tax credits and use that equity to offset the fact that they can only, you know, finance uh, up to $600 rent incomes versus $1,000 rent incomes. If that makes sense.
2: Yeah, Fred, thanks for joining us today. I, re- I really appreciate you coming in. This is really a- an interesting concept, I think, for a lot of our listeners, because, you know, uh, knowing the different asset types and different product types and different loan types are are always options, right? And if you don't know what that uh, ambiguous affordable housing uh, asset class is, that can be confusing. So let's talk a little, I mean, you've mentioned a little bit about kind of the definition and and, uh, social uh, purpose. Let's talk a little bit about the difference between affordable housing and, you know, standard apartment housing that may, you know, accept some government programs such as Section 8. Those are very different, right? Affordable housing is specific to the property, correct?
0: Yeah, so affordable housing is is really targeting the incomes of the tenants. Um, in a market rate property, you can certainly have Section 8 contracts. So a tenant could bring in a Section 8 voucher. Uh, they would pay 30% of their income towards rent, and then the voucher would pay for the residual. So, in my example, let's say that the voucher was $700, the tenant would pay $600 and the voucher would pick up the other 100 to get to that $700 number. Um, in affordable housing, the rents are restricted irrespective of a tenant having a voucher and there is a Land Use Restriction Agreement, or ALURA, uh, that's the acronym. Um, that is actually goes with the title of the property so that those rents on those units can never exceed those area median income rents that I defined earlier.
2: So, is it somewhat of a branding once it's in the affordable housing realm, it remains that way and is passed on through title forever?
0: Uh, Not forever, but in order to secure the low-income housing tax credits, which, as I mentioned, generates the equity, uh, a good slug of the equity for these projects, most states require that you sign an extended use agreement. So I mentioned the land use restriction agreement. There's an initial compliance period for the low-income housing tax credits. That's a total of 15 years and then most of the states require that you extend that at least another 15 years and sometimes up to 99 years. Wow. So those land use restriction agreements are on title to the point uh, for that period of time.
2: And you had mentioned it as well that, you know, those federal tax credits are obviously federal dollars. Many states have um, state dollars as well, but but um, Oregon is not one of those. What, what, what does the West Coast look like versus – the East Coast and metropolitan-wise?
0: So it really goes state by state, and it's passed by the state legislatures. Um, When I cut my teeth, if you will, in the affordable housing arena in Missouri, there was a state credit um, that could be bifurcated from the federal credit. But it really is state by state. I, I don't know the exact number, but there's more than a handful of states that have it. Georgia does, California has a state credit for certain um, situations. Um, But you just have to, if you're a developer and you're looking in the West, uh, Arizona's looking at passing one right now, Um, and you're going to have to look at each state's qualified action plan. That's the QAP. It's essentially the rules of the road for affordable housing state by state. And that will quickly tell you, what uh, types of, of tax credits are available for for the particular project. So one of the things
1: um, that's interesting, I mean, obviously this is a state-by-state thing, but one of the things that I heard recently, and I don't know if this has ever happened before or if you got wind of this kind of story, was that there some landlords that were in California that had done some affordable projects, and whatever agreements they had had that would allow them to move to market rate are pretty much coming up for expiration. And the city was basically saying hey, we may not let you do that. We may actually may not honor
0: these agreements. Um, have you seen that actually materialize or heard anything about that? Uh, I haven't heard about that specifically, but I will, I will say that the uh, original land use restriction agreements, uh, most of them were just for the 15 years. So the Tax Act of 1986 is what uh, generated the low-income housing tax credits through Section 42. Obviously, we don't want to delve too deep into that, but... <laughs> But uh, but the point is that that under that original under those original land use restriction agreements, um, those essentially expired, and then you could take the project to market. There was a three year period to transition that, so you couldn't just immediately kick the residents out and go to market. But with these extended use agreements, um, some states will allow, under the uh, regulations, there's what they call a qualifying contract, and so you can put a qualified contract to the state and essentially opt out of your land use restriction agreement, but for the most part, um, anymore, the states are making those laws bulletproof so that you can't get out. Uh, I've, again, not heard of the case that you mentioned, but I, it, it is harder and harder once you've... Agreed to restrict the rents to get out.
1: Yeah, and and this wasn't a case. I think this was in Los Angeles. Um, it, this wasn't a case of them wanting to get out of the agreement early. Is that the agreement was over, and this you know basically the city was like you know we're not going to let you basically uproot all these people and start moving things to market. So um, this is more of a th- like a conversation that was happening among the city council as opposed to. You Interesting. Yeah.
0: Well, again, I've not heard of that specific case. It doesn't certainly doesn't surprise me because obviously, um, you want to keep as as many units in the affordable housing stock as you can. But I would be surprised if there was some legal aspect that the city could stand on to, you know, essentially keep the project affordable if the uh, if the owners did want to didn't want to do that.
2: Well, you know, it's an interesting situation in in a lot of the uh, more liberal, legislatively driven states that you don't have more tax benefit. Statewide, You know, Oregon, for instance, obviously they have, the Democrats have a, a supermajority. Oftentimes they go a little bit more uh, heavy on legislation, and they're on the tenants. From a tenant perspective, they're looking to protect that affordable housing sector. And you would think that they would, um, if they were really concerned about affordable housing, they would be uh, pushing to provide additional units.
0: Well, certainly they encourage, uh, the states all do, uh, encourage affordable housing. I mean, there's... Part of the reason we're here is to talk about that because it becomes more and more prevalent. Um, I think workforce is another buzzword that we can touch on here in a little bit. But in terms of the state's encouragement, some of the things that they do, quite frankly, a lot of it's geared towards nonprofits. However, as a for-profit developer, you can incorporate a nonprofit in your partnership to do things like tax exemption, things like that that can help the overall cash flow of the property. Mm-hmm. Um, and the states are, are more than happy to to give up the right to that real estate tax in order to facilitate more affordable housing.
2: Right. Well, you know, the, the term affordable housing is really a buzzword with just about every politician. What, what are some of the barriers to uh, affordable housing?
0: Well, from a for-profit uh, developer perspective. I mean, one of the largest barriers is is just all the intricacies of structuring a partnership, understanding all the rules of the road. So, for instance, I mentioned the qualified action plan. Um, the other big barrier is that these tax credits, for the most part, are competitive. So, you're sending in an application. You're submitting an application to the state requesting tax credits. Um, or in the case of uh, tax-exempt bond deals, requesting private activity bond allocation, and you're not the only one showing up to do that. For instance, in Washington, the last bond round, there was $230 million of tax-exempt bonds that were awarded to various projects, and there was nearly a billion dollars of applications. So no. one of every less <laughs> than one lot. of every three applications got an award. So wow. that's your that's the uh, that's sort of the the niche or the or the barrier to entry, if you will. Yeah. Um, in that it is competitive, and that y- you have to have an application that scores well in order to get an allocation. Otherwise, you could be you know spending money that you'll never see come back. So maybe you can talk a little bit about, you know, project sizes.
1: Um, Sometimes people think this is something that's maybe way outside of their capability as an individual, but, you know, there are obviously a lot of really big projects, but there's also some, you know, smaller
0: projects out there. Can you maybe talk about just the different size projects that that exist in this space? Sure. So there's really two different kinds of low-income housing tax credits, the 9%, which is competitive and typically... Is for smaller projects. I would say that any project from maybe 15 to 20 units uh, up to 80 or so would be the right size to do that. Um, th- that type and size of a project between the tax credits and the debt that you can secure. Um, and I work with a number of my clients on you know doing both sides of those transactions and and in, and securing the entire capital stack. Um, Those can be done, you know, believe it or not, I've even looked at a project myself to do that. So uh, those are certainly within the grasp of of most for-profit developers. Once you start looking at bond transactions, which involve 4% tax credits, um, you really need some scale. So I typically advise my clients that the projects need to be at least 100 units or greater. And that's just because there's a much greater financial cost, number one, on the front end to do those deals. But number two, because the way the tax credits are done on a 4% credit, you get less tax credit equity than you do on a smaller project. That may seem counterintuitive, but that's just how the rules of the road are played. So you need a much larger project in order to generate the cash flow to support the capital stack.
2: And, you know, a a lot of times people will just assume that we're talking only multifamily, but are there other areas, um, other products, I guess, that can also include, like, subdivisions of single-family homes, townhomes, mobile home parks, or is it specific to apartment buildings?
0: So there are some programs, certainly for mobile home parks, um, as it pertains to the low-income housing tax credits. It's typically either... You know, full, affordable projects. There can be some mixed income projects, meaning that you can do some market rate and still generate tax credits. Um, I've worked on a number of mixed-use projects. Um, obviously, you need a, a good uh, legal and, and professional uh, team surrounding you to cut through some of the intricacies of, of those structures, but it can certainly be done. Um, and, in fact, a lot of times because of zoning laws, you have to incorporate some commercial uh, aspect of that project. Those are done with you know, a fair amount of regularity.
2: Mm. Okay.
1: So one of the things that's – I mean, obviously, like with affordable housing, people are trying to figure out how to you know, provide more, more supply because obviously the demand is there. There's some other tools that people have used maybe outside of you know, ground-up development and things like that. One of the things that we've seen roll out in some other cities, and one is uh, in Oregon statewide, was um, inclusionary zoning. Maybe you could just kind of share your thoughts on that as a policy, if you think it's effective, like, just...
0: I In terms of inclusionary zoning, um, if you're going to be... An affordable developer to begin with it really doesn't affect that aspect of it but I think as a policy uh, in general I'm I'm not so much in favor of it um, because I think that um, developers just in general get a, a little taken aback by inclusionary zoning you don't quite understand maybe all of the rules as it pertains to that I know there's a lot of times fee-in-lieu, so you can pay a fee to avoid including affordable housing mm-hmm. in your project. But, I mean, there really is somewhat of a dichotomy between the true of for-profit market rate developer and an affordable housing developer. And I think that trying to force a for-profit uh, market rate developer into an affordable box, I think, just dissuades supply, which is, frankly, what we need.
1: Yeah, and it also kind of flies in the face of, you know, highest and best use, right, of a site if you're focused on, you know, for-profit development. So, Agreed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's going to be interesting, at least in Portland, where we are based, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. We've definitely seen the pipeline thin out. like um, could be for, obviously, a variety of reasons, but there probably is, at least what some people believe, a correlation between the IZ stuff that Portland's put in place and... You
0: know, yeah, the, most of the studies that I've read, and you know, as you can imagine, there's a number of of white papers, both for and against IZ. But um, most of the studies that I have seen, including a lot of the national um, supporters of affordable housing, will tell you that IZ policy is typically, you know, not good and not helpful, um, just in terms of generating more supply, which again is. Is the issue? Mm-hmm. Right? There's not a demand issue. There's a supply issue, and if you even cause folks to take a pause for a second, uh, that's just you know that many fewer units that get built sooner.
2: Well, it it seems also you know that really I- IZ or inclusionary zoning is. Um, affordable housing without the tax benefit, right? I mean, if the principle between, behind affordable housing is, you know, you, you don't get the cash flow, you put a little bit more time and energy and effort into the property to offer the units at a below market value, but in exchange you get tax credits or some benefit from that. And inclusionary zoning requires that you offer those units at lower than market without the tax benefit.
0: Correct. And to your point, I mean, there's there's really not an offset in in true affordable housing. As you mentioned, I mean, you're you're generating equity by, you know, uh, reducing the rents that you charge. And again, for a a, a market rate for profit uh, developer, there is no benefit. I mean, it reduces the amount of debt that the project can handle. It requires more equity and. Every dollar of equity they have to put into Project X means that they have less equity to put into Project Y.
1: So um, I guess another kind of tool that we've seen emerge um, along the West Coast and is showing up in other parts of the country, too, in regards to affordability. I mean, you know, one of the things you're talking about is like, hey, well, we're just going to have essentially the rents are going to be less, right? So that's going to allow for more housing. Some people might say, well, why do we do that complicated process? Why not implement rent control, right, which has happened in – California and Oregon and New York and different places like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and again, rent control, much like inclusionary zoning sounds good, but in practice it really does hamper the supply of, of units. Um, You know, I, I think that the, the uh, law that was passed here in Oregon, and, and believe me, there's a lot of talk about not only Oregon, but New York, Washington, Washington D.C., California, obviously is looking at rent control. And again, most of the affordable housing advocates will tell you that that is the last thing that we should be imposing, um, and that it it really does the opposite of, of what it's trying to, trying to do. And in fact, if you look at the Oregon law i mean i mean it's out there but if you look at where you can take rents i mean it really doesn't have a lot of effect it just creates more noise frankly and uh, back to what i said about inclusionary zoning i mean it just causes people to hit the pause button to figure out the ramifications all on on what what the laws are going to impose upon them and stops the process of building more units
2: how much actual housing experience do the policymakers have and I mean that's a question that um, you know you see some of the people that are assigned to be the um, housing advisor to um, you know senators and House of rep folks and I just don't understand where their experience comes from for them having a passion about for this and for having an emotional connection to it I don't think speaks to the logic behind the policy or the experience they have and I'm not I'm not clear on who they're using to advise them.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's a great point. I mean, you know, the there are a number of affordable housing advocacy groups, to say the least. Um, and while they try to give their input and have it heard in Washington, and I think for the most part, they are. I think people do listen. Um, but, you know, it certainly would be helpful to have more folks with you know, true affordable housing or even development experience that are either helping to set policy or at least advising on it.
2: Well, thank you for joining us so far, Fred. We really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break uh, for a word from our sponsor. We'll be back to talk a little bit more about affordable housing. And maybe if this might be right for you, stay tuned. Every real estate transaction is an investment. Whether you're buying your first home, selling your current home, or looking for an investment property, you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth. Matt Williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one. Unlike other realtors, Matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate, go to BisonProperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N properties.com and we're back we are here talking to Fred he's going to delve a little bit into uh, whether or not some of these products might be right for us as investors and who's in that space Fred uh, thanks again for joining us what kind of returns can someone really earn holding affordable housing and, and utilizing the affordable housing template
0: Well, I'll I'll be honest with you, for the for-profit developer that wants to get involved with it, the way the capital stack is ultimately um, put together between the low-income housing tax credit equity, um, debt, you'll have some deferred developer fees, and there may be some soft monies available from either federal, state, or local municipalities. To be honest with you, the uh, return can be infinite because as the general partner, developer in a project, you could end up with literally no money invested in the project. Now, again, a lot of technical aspects of structuring that, but for the most part, the returns uh, are fee-driven, so developer fee. Um, If you're a vertically integrated for-profit developer, you can generate construction management fees or Contractor fees, if you own a construction company, and then also management fees. So there's management fees derived from you know overseeing the compliance of the low income housing restrictions on the units, making sure that tenants are income qualified, etc. But those are the primary places uh, that a for profit developer could derive income from a project. To be honest, there's not uh, a great deal of cash flow. And what cash flow there is is typically sucked up by the developer through incentive management fees because ultimately the tax credit investors are looking for tax credits and taxable losses. They don't care about the cash flow.
2: So, if I'm hearing you right, there's, um, you know, if you're out looking for an apartment building that's going to cash flow, this isn't maybe the right product. But if you are uh, in the development, management, um, and maintenance, business, you're basically creating your own client and continuing that on to, to feed that business. Is
0: that... I'd say that's an accurate summary, yep.
2: Great. And you know what? what's the financing situation? Obviously, um, you know, if you buy a single-family home, it, it, it may sound complex if you've never purchased one, but in comparison to a commercial product or a multifamily product, a single-family home is uh, like filling out a, a, a simple application of the DMV. Uh, whereas we have a pretty significant shift when you get to affordable, right?
0: <clears throat> That's correct. So in in the affordable, there, as I mentioned at the top, there's there's really a, a myriad of permanent products uh, available, and what I mean by permanent, so Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you can do you know HUD products, and a lot of banks for community reinvestment act or CRA purposes will look to do both the construction and do the perm lending on their books. Remember, as I mentioned earlier, that the initial compliance period under the land use restriction agreement is 15 years. So your permanent debt has at least a 15-year term. But what's interesting in affordable housing, there's two aspects that aren't available to market rate developers. Number one, you can get a forward rate lock on your permanent product uh that can go up to three years forward. Wow. So you could lock a rate today that doesn't convert until the project stabilizes thirty-six months out. Hmm. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that because the cash flow is constrained by the rents that are constrained, um the debt service coverage and the loan to value requirements are less. So your typical Um, debt service coverage requirement is a 1.15 versus your standard 1.25 in a market rate development, and you can go up to 90% loan-to-value. So between all of those things, being able to secure a rate, especially in today's low interest rate environment, and push the proceeds a little bit, again, remembering that your NOI, your net operating income, is constrained by lower rents. Um, you can pretty much assure yourself of what the capital stack ultimately is going to look like for the project. So from that perspective, you know, there's a benefit.
1: So obviously these are really different loan products, right? And so um, they're more complex. We just kind of touched on that. I assume that adds to the timeline of approval, right? So, you know, how long or when should an investor really start looking in this process? Because, you know, if they're trying to plan on acquiring a site or developing a site or getting entitlements for a site or whatever it happens to be or maybe even a, a re, rehab on a, on a building, what sort of time frame should they expect to have to kind of go through?
0: So it really depends upon each state's application period, right? So if you're looking for tax credits, each state either has an annual or a buy, uh, or a semi-annual um, application period. In which you can apply. So once you apply, those projects are typically awarded either tax credits or bonds within, you know, call it 60 days post-application deadline. Mm -hmm. And then from there, you can expect anywhere between six and nine months to be able to close your project. Because even though you've received letters of intent that you need for your applications for the various aspects of the capital stack – now you have to go and negotiate those. You have to go through the closing process. You have to get commitments from various lenders and tax credit providers, and to just go through the process. I mean, you should you should think about you know six to nine months from the time that you submit your application, and you've probably been working on the project a good two to three months prior to that. So twelve months is really the timeline.
2: You know, uh, in the commercial world, oftentimes. I know that um, lenders are looking at your experience in the field. How much of that plays a part in your ability to obtain financing if you have experience or don't and that kind of thing?
0: Great point. So, you know, affordable housing is not something that you can just learn falling out of bed, right? So um, you you definitely, if you don't have the personal experience, you're going to definitely want to partner with management companies, with construction companies or rehab companies in the case of an act rehab deal that have that experience and you're going to want to point to that in your applications experience is certainly something that is looked about looked upon both from a qualitative and a quantitative um, perspective in these applications and beyond that you know when you're talking to tax credit investors and you're talking to potential lending partners they're going to want to know that as well because you know, to the point we're not going to delve into all the intricacies of section 42 and those kinds of things. Uh, but there's definitely a lot of gotchas in there that you have to be cognizant of. And so, yeah, in terms of, you know,
1: management experience, one of the things that I had heard from a friend of mine who had done a kind of smaller affordable project recently was that the property management company actually had to be a nonprofit for them to get some of the benefits that they were working with. So, um, I don't know if that was like just a misunderstanding or if that's a Kind
0: of a, f- I think that's an urban thing. legend. Urban legend, <laughs> yes. <that's, laughs> no, no. There's certainly a number of for-profit, um, and I think that that most of the nonprofit management companies are ones that manage their own portfolio. Mm-hmm. So as you can imagine, in affordable housing, there's a plethora of nonprofit developers that do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of management itself, for profits, as long as they have the experience and the compliance acumen, can certainly
2: do it. Is there a heavy concentration in specific areas, region-wise? Is it is it primarily focused on uh, in major metropolitans? Is it spread across the United States? Is it did it start in the e- on the East Coast? Is there a, a migration of some sort attached to affordable housing, or is it in general? No, I wouldn't say
0: that there's a migration. Although I would say that both um, F- Freddie and Fannie, you know, again, two of the predominant players in terms of financing affordable housing have under their regulator, a duty to serve. And that duty to serve has definitely given them uh, reason to to focus a little bit more in some rural areas. I think, you know, rural through the RD or the um, USDA programs have always been out there. But in terms of larger scale developments, now you're seeing some of that, mainly because of the cost factor, but also because there's a focus um, I, I would tell you that there has always been a focus, certainly in the urban areas. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned earlier, with, with market rate developers and sort of the highest and best use, that's typically gone to the market rate. Um, but I, I think that, you know, as municipalities, you know, continue to see the need and hear from their constituents that, hey, we really need to help folks out on the lower end of the income spectrum. That you know, cities are even getting involved in and in buying land to ensure that there's uh, uh, parcels available for affordable housing.
2: Well, I know that there there are oftentimes trades done. Um, you know, I know that the city of Gresham here in the Portland metro area essentially sold like a two million dollar piece of property. To a developer for a dollar, but in exchange, they want community centers. They want it to be done within a specific period of time, and then they're also uh, included some uh, low income housing in that as well. That's right, and and to take that one step further, I mean, I think that a lot of uh,
0: a lot of the voters are seeing that affordable housing is 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 a hugely needed, uh, I'll say, commodity, right, in terms of generating more supply. For instance, the city of Vancouver, Washington, a couple of years ago, put to vote um, a, uh, a sales tax which was passed and generated $42 million that the city is doling out, $6 million per annum over a seven-year period of time towards affordable housing. Um, you can get up to, I think, $850,000 per project as a developer to do that, and that's both for and nonprofits. Um The city of Los Angeles passed measure Triple H, which was a quarter cent um, sales tax that the voters approved overwhelmingly. I think it was like 63 percent, and it generated $1.2 million towards not only homeless, but affordable housing projects throughout the L.A. County area
2: wow so so good things can be done legislatively <laughs> that's, that's good news now from a banking perspective obviously you know one of the benefits to the affordable housing piece is that you can come in with a little less skin in the game you secure low interest rates for longer periods of time are the banks doing this out of the kindness of their heart is there a benefit for them is their security backed by um you know some government entities how, how does that piece work Yeah, so two
0: things. I mean, especially when you have, um, if we're talking about true affordable housing and you have the low-income housing tax credits and the investors that are involved in those, because of the benefits that are to the investors, they're typically not going to let those projects fail. So, for instance, if there's a hiccup in a deal and the developer, the general partner, can't fix it, they'll typically step in. So to the point... um, the return thresholds, you know, are in the single digits in terms of an internal rate of return that folks require. As I mentioned, from a from a bank perspective, there's the Community Reinvestment Act, so it checks that box. But there certainly is um, uh, security. There's a lot less risk, if you will, in affordable housing just because of, A, the attention, and, B, because that equity drives the debt down to a point where even, as I mentioned, at a 115 debt Cover that doesn't seem like a lot, right?
2: But there's plenty of cash flow in those deals. And and as you mentioned too, I mean these aren't developers that are in to build it and then out a majority of the time. As you mentioned, it's vertical, right? So they, the uh, developer developers oftentimes the uh, end holder or carrier. So the developers will
0: ultimately receive the property back once the investor is, we'll say, out of the partnership at the end of year 15 or a little bit beyond that. Um, And typically what we see in these projects, again, remembering that you're signing a land use restriction agreement that's going to go beyond those 15 years, is you'll see the developer do what they call a re-syndication and apply, get new tax credits, rehab the property, freshen it up, and do the same thing all over again.
2: And are you seeing any of these affordable housing projects actually enter the Opportunity Zone? and being developed there? Is it too early to see? So the the opportunity
0: zone is, you would think, should marry quite well with affordable housing. But in fact, because a lot of the investors and opportunity funds, right, they get the step up at the end of year 10. Well, you've still got five years left in your initial compliance period. So it causes a bit of a problem because it's really difficult to refinance your property in year 10. So you can find that in the perfect storm. I've seen instances where developers themselves are selling some other assets, and they'll roll those proceeds into a tax credit deal, um, and that'll be part of the equity contribution. So there's ways to structure it, but for the most part, these projects don't really lend themselves well to uh, incorporating opportunity zone funds with it.
2: Well, it would seem that it, um, because, I mean, the other challenge, I guess, to that, given the size of these projects, is that you have a, a call in 2026 for the gain that you roll into it anyway. And I would see that being a little bit of a challenge for someone that's going into a, a, a deal like that.
0: Yeah, there's, there's quite a few things that you'd have to structure around. And again, I've seen it work with, you know, when all the stars and planets align. But otherwise, it's, it's really tough to marry all of those elements together into a, a single project.
1: It's too bad they didn't run them more parallel, because then that could be a really good opportunity. I mean, you're going into areas that, you know, theoretically are more blighted as opposed to, you know, more prosperous. And it um, seems like that's probably where they would want to see some of this type of housing stock. But, um, you know, we've talked a lot about just financing a little bit and, and then some of the development. But, you know, one of the things that people often think about, too, when it comes to affordable housing is managing the asset um, and some people think that affordable housing projects are actually more difficult to
0: manage. What are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's true? Or Certainly there are compliance issues with affordable housing that you have to be uh, cognizant of. One, one of the things in particular, the developer that I worked for also did the management side, and we had – We build a a fairly sizable fireproof vault in the bottom of our office, and you wonder, well, why would he do that? Well, the reason is when you initially income-qualify folks in those units, so the very first residents that take place in the projects, you have to keep those files for a minimum of 10 years. So you can't ever lose those. And and I was working for a developer before, you know, Microfish and, you know, well, I guess not Microfish, but PDFs and some of those things were as prevalent as they are today. Yeah. So, you know, it's those kinds of things that you need to be cognizant of. But in terms of compliance, if you fall out of compliance, there can be what they call recapture. And what that means is that the government can come back and say, you did not follow the rules of the road we are going to recapture some of the tax credits that you have previously received. That obviously can cause a bit of of financial distress on the developer because typically they are uh, on the hook for ensuring that the investors get the tax credits that they, you know, paid for. Um, And once you fall out of compliance, that that certainly gets a uh, hyper sense of scrutiny from the state agency who oversees affordable housing.
1: So um, that's interesting. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, again, going back to affordable housing, I mean, the the goal is to serve a certain demographic, right? Like that's pretty much what it is. People who are on the lower income spectrum, that's what they're trying to address. Um, you know, and especially what we're seeing on the West Coast and western part of the United States uh, is a significant rise in homelessness. Um, you know, access to housing is obviously, like, one major step it's probably the first step for a lot of people to get some stability but probably what's more important in the long run is like keeping them there right so it's like sure you get access but are you able to stay in that housing do you see affordable housing projects offer like wraparound services do they like plan for these types of things to ensure that you know the residents that
0: are getting into these projects are actually able to stay and yeah, I, I think that the better developers offer some of those wraparound services, as you mentioned, just as a matter of course, and they actually build a suite of services to to serve whatever population, be it age restricted or seniors, you know, large families, or folks that have either uh, mental or physical disabilities. Um, in terms of, and you mentioned, you know, the homeless uh, piece of it. So there's a housing first model, which says, let's just get these folks out and you know get a roof over their heads and, and get them shelter. But it's really, and what you're seeing now is a big focus on what they call PSH or permanent supportive housing, which includes operating subsidies to, to do case management and to take care of the mental health side of homelessness, because that's what's going to keep those folks from getting back Onto the streets again, and again, it's—I mean—it's one of the hot topics right now in affordable housing that everyone's trying to address. Not only you know the rental side of it, and again, you know, getting roofs over folks' head, but also, um, but also uh, making sure that that the folks that need it have those services available to them.
2: You know, the, it's interesting. Prior to the show, you were talking a little bit about that uh, middle ground, right? Whether it be the um, college graduate that comes out and picks up a 40000 a year job. They've got enough money to not qualify for any subsidy, but not enough to get into a unit that's near work. they got to pick up a roommate or a family that's kind of doing the same thing, right? I mean, you're either spending it on um, daycare for the kids or one spouse is staying home to care for the kids, and which obviously drops your income. What would you say about that being a target that middle space uh, as far as uh, qualifying for for some of the affordable housing units so i
0: i call it the missing middle it's not just me there's a number of folks that uh, that that conversation is is ongoing for a couple of different reasons you know you talked about the target right so there's a lot of folks that are in that sort of middle income aren't going to qualify for the low income restrictions right and mm-hmm you know, you're seeing more and more mixed income affordable projects. So you've got a cohort of low income folks, you've got sort of middle income folks, and you may even have some market rate units. Um, you know, th- that discussion is is really becoming uh, a, a more of a hot topic because, as I mentioned earlier, tax credits and bond allocations are limited in in, qual- in, in quantity, excuse me. And because of that, There's actually a lot more subsidy available to projects than there are projects that are getting awards. So they're talking about, hey, if we can do, call it 80 to 100 or 120 percent of area median income rents versus, you know, even those still have a 10 to 15 percent advantage over market rents. Let's figure out, again, how to get roofs over those folks' head, and let's do it closer in to the job centers, because right now those folks are being forced so far out, you can't even get public transportation in some of those areas. So to the point, um, that will continue to gain momentum, in my opinion. Um, And and as proof of it, Freddie Mac, uh, two years ago, rolled out, what they called a non litec forward program. So it was really targeted at workforce housing and still gave you the benefits of a forward rate lock. They were given a half a billion dollar allocation and, uh, for this year for 2020 and it's already gone. So mm-hmm. that tells wow. you how much people are focused on that. And with just a little bit of incentive, it can, uh, it can certainly garner the attention of, of both
2: for and nonprofit developers. Well, it certainly seems like one solution that people are looking for is some type of um, transitioning benefit program because you know it's either you're in or you're out type situation. At some point, you make too much to be able to qualify for a Section 8 housing voucher, which then prevents that individual from taking the next step, the next promotion at their job and a second job to make things happen and get ahead. And um, from an affordable housing perspective, I could certainly see from a tenant uh, scenario on the tenant side and them saying, hey, once I'm here, I'm stuck here.
0: Yeah. Well, so, you know, the original, I think, you know, I'll call it thesis behind affordable housing was to get folks to a safe, decent place that they could live and afford at 30% of their income. And then that would allow them to focus on other aspects, improving themselves, getting an education, improving their job status, and, and ultimately getting out of that affordable housing project to a home, to, you know, wherever, right? Um, I think that that somewhere along the way that got lost a little bit, and you were seeing more and more people, to your point, that just sort of entered into an affordable housing project and were just sort of there, Right. Um, I think that sort of this missing middle, getting and bringing those folks back in closer to to job centers by using some of the incentives that previously would have gone to the true capital A, affordable, as I've said before, uh, I think can be helpful so that those folks then – within a short period of time, can take that next step, right? Get that additional education, take the job promotion you mentioned, and then move up and out to either a you know townhome, single-family home, wherever. So, um,
1: I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of different stakeholders involved in putting together these deals and transactions. I mean, obviously, if you're the developer, it sounds like obviously there's a way to make some good money in this. Uh, if you're one of the parties interested in the tax credits, that can be beneficial. But when you step back and kind of take a look at affordable housing and these projects and how they work, do you think it really is a good deal for, you know, not just the investor, but also the tenants and then also the taxpayer who ultimately is, you know, funding a lot of these credits?
0: Certainly from the resident standpoint, I mean, if you've gone into any new affordable housing project, they rival the market rate stuff. I mean, you'll see... In some instances, granite countertops and those kinds of things. Um, so, from from the residents' perspective, absolutely. Um, I think from the taxpayers' perspective, you know what I believe is that, and again, I, I go back to a couple of the examples I said in the city of Vancouver, Washington, and LA County. People understand, and and I think truly believe that we need to help those that are less fortunate, and they're willing to put their votes in to prove that fact but i also think that the more we can get folks and especially tying in some of the wraparound services that you mentioned earlier then that takes a lot of stress off of you know the emergency you know systems and and food stamps and a lot of the sort of the uh welfare type um things that taxpayers finance right i mean ultimately that's where our tax dollars go to finance those programs so i would like to think especially as we continue and hopefully continue to accelerate the supply of affordable housing, that that'll take a little bit of a burden off of those various programs.
2: Well, it certainly seems, I mean, from when you look at it in terms of logic, you know, we want healthy communities. We want people to have housing. We want to, uh, if the core belief that we have as a country and as a, City or county or community or neighborhood or whatever that may be is to uh, prevent homelessness and to um, stimulate kids that are are in stable environments and families that have housing. It should be something that everyone funds and one thing about affordable affordable housing that I think is a positive is that it 's everyone funding it you know you look at some of the policies like Seattle has um, you know currently they're they just now passed the no eviction in the winter policy as my the same colleague mentioned that 's uh, based on the French system, right and the French system was is different because when you can 't evict that individual, you are subsidized by the government within those months. Someone is paying the landlord the rent right that 's not the case in Seattle. instead, you as a landlord directly are hit with that, same with the inclusionary zoning. you take on the additional liability and get none of the benefit and so I, I like at least that aspect of, of the um, affordable housing. Um, community and the opportunity really for the developer to benefit, the tenant to benefit, and really our communities to benefit. So I, I've really learned quite a bit about the affordable housing program here. We're going to get into some questions about you for a bit, Fred. And unless you have any parting words that maybe the audience would would want to know prior to the transition.
0: Uh, I think I would just like to say that I, I agree. I think that's a nice assessment and summary. Um, you know, I've worked hard and the clients that I work with really believe in, in what they're doing and, and I can tell you that their hearts are in the right place. Um, I can tell you that in working with uh, just a myriad of, of professionals that everybody's sort of focused on, in my opinion, the right things, not only the residents, but but to your point, to make sure that everyone benefits from these projects and and it's not just one group that uh, gets the spoils so th- thank you for you know giving me the platform to talk about that
2: with you guys and and really appreciate that yeah absolutely so a little bit about you I mean my first question you know is there an aha moment that you've had in the past year that's changed how you approach some part of your career your investment strategy or your personal life wow that's a really Interesting question. You know, I think the one
0: aha moment that I've had—I've um, got a couple of stepsons that are in college, and and my son is just about ready to graduate high school—and to see them, frankly, go from probably what I was back then, is kind, of <laughs> a, a, kind of a knucklehead, uh, to sort of taking the next steps to like look at and and formula formulate the next part of their life. And knowing that, at least I would like to think that, I, I was part of how they got to that point was pretty cool. And that, you know, I can check the box in terms of, you know what, as a parent, I did okay. And, and that may sound odd as terms of an aha moment. But for me, just knowing that I did good for my kids like that was, was pretty special,
2: I have to say. Yeah, well, well, I mean, those tools, that's the, the opportunity, I think, to raise someone and give them an environment where they are thinking for themselves, they're disciplined, um, but their spirit isn't broken. That's a hard process from a parental perspective, <laughs> I'm, right? I'm glad to
0: hear I didn't break their spirit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm not saying you didn't. I'm just saying I'm working really hard not to yeah, break yeah. the spirit of mine. I I understand.
1: Yeah, that's why I have a cat is a lot easier to just, you know, <laughs> let it chill.
2: <laughs> you yeah, break, feed break the a day. cat spirit instead.
1: Sometimes, I mean, <laughs> although he's pretty much in charge, it seems like. But, um, yeah, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about an important ritual
0: you have and do every day. So every day I make a to-do list. Um, and as time has gone on, it's it's gravitated from a little notebook to now. I pull up my iPhone every morning, and I get in the little notes section, and I write down or type in the things that I'm going to accomplish. Um, and, and what's interesting is, is I try to separate the important from the urgent, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I try to focus much more uh, on the important. Um, so that's something literally I'll do every day, every morning. Super helpful, and it also, frankly, uh, if 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 things continue to show up on that to do list, it, it tells me that those, frankly, either a weren't that important, or that I need to you know double
2: down my efforts to focus on it. Then you just have to find out who to delegate it to. Yeah, I, I mean, at some that. point, if you make it five days, that's that's what I try to do. If I've got something for five days in a row that I put on my list that I needed to do. I've got to delegate it out. I'm just not going to do it or refer it out, right? I mean, from a business perspective, it's one of those things where, you know, if you've got that much business, maybe you refer it out to someone that can really take that client on. Good point. So how do you measure success, Fred?
0: Uh, I measure success, um, frankly, because I've been living, eating, and breathing affordable housing for, gosh, I don't know, for the last 20 years or so. Um, I measure success by, you know, how – the transactions complete and what I mean by that is you know working with the team and it truly is a team or sometimes a small village to get a deal closed just to kind of see ultimately the benefit and then I try to you know there's always something you can learn from those things and in the and the things that I can take and then apply to make the next deal a little bit easier that's kind of how I measure that right um And, again, that may sound a a little strange other than the fact that I think you can always get a little bit better. And you can always learn things from people. Um, One of my mentors used to always tell me, you got two ears and one mouth, use them in proportion, right? And so I think that being able to listen and and see what other folks are doing and and take some of those things, uh, good or bad, right, and apply them to the next deal is super important. Great. Um,
1: If you could have dinner with one person, dead or alive, who would it be?
0: Well, uh, that's a really good question. So I I think for me, if I'm going to have dinner, I'd like to have an enjoyable, entertaining dinner. I think I would love love to have dinner with Frank Sinatra. I think that would be super interesting on a lot of different levels. He lived through a lot of different times. He was involved. I mean... When he befriended Sammy Davis Jr., I mean that was a pretty big step in terms of the whole race relations thing mm-hmm. back in the yep. day. Uh, and you know, I mean, he obviously enjoyed his bourbon. That's not a bad thing, no, right? It's definitely not. And uh, and a good steak. So you know, have have dinner with uh, Frank Sinatra in Vegas. That'd be fantastic. Wow, that's a great answer. <laughs> it is.
2: So, at dinner, are you having whiskey or wine?
0: Oh, I'm definitely having bourbon. There's no doubt about <laughs> And there's a difference. Bourbon oh, and yeah. whiskey. There is. Yeah. is there any favorites? Uh, well, you know, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky for a while. Notice how I say Louisville. So, uh, Woodford Reserve was one of the first things I think I drank once I got off the plane when I was there. So, yeah. I've been gravitating more to rise. I like a little bit of the sweeter stuff. And so, I'll just go into Total Wine and pick something I haven't had before and kind of check it out. I think... Honestly, one of the best ones I've had uh, in recent times is some Jefferson's Ocean. A little spendy uh, in terms of what a fifth costs, but it's pretty tasty. So nice.
2: I'll have to try.
0: Give it a, yeah, give it a try. Have, yeah. you, have it's
2: got, you tried that, it's got a little. I have. I've... I've, I've
0: I would not,
1: uh, I probably don't want to go over all the whiskeys I've had on this <laughs> no, podcast. I was just it's, asking
2: about one in particular. Uh,
1: uh, uh, oh, but <laughs> Jefferson has a line of uh, probably it like is. at least. I like having different... a little
0: bit of salt in theirs.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, they put it on a ship and put it out in the water, and, right. you know, so I guess that's one way to go. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, rides are interesting. They can go, you know, dark and sweet, like Rittenhouse, so they can go light and a little bit, uh, you know, maybe uh, softer. Like,
0: like Sazerac, You like, like a good smoky one, you can try uh, Campfire, right? Oh, right. the High West, yeah, yeah, that's really smoky.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I, that was the, that was the one that I tried at the Whiskey Library. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. nice.
1: Well, um, you know, Fred, we want to thank you for coming in and spending some time with us today. Um, you know, how can our audience get a hold of you or view your information?
0: So, uh, Fred F R E D dot Dockweiler D O C K. W-E-I-L-E-R at Berkadia. B-E-R-K-A-D-I-A dot com. Or you can always feel free to call or text me on my cell 503-261-3668.
2: Perfect. Well, thanks, Fred. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for joining us today. If you find this show valuable, we have two favors to ask. The first, please subscribe to our podcast. And the second, give us a review. The more subscribers and the more reviews we have, the better the show and the better the guests. Until next time, invest in the West.